Have you ever had the end of a film or a book or a series spoiled? You know what I mean? So you, you in, in, enjoy watching Bake Off and uh, it's announced on the radio before you've caught up on Catch Up what's happening and you know who's won or it's Strictly or X Factor if that's uh, what you like. Uh, or you've had the latest blockbuster spoiled by a blabbermouth who just can't stop talking about all the spoilers that are in it. So I remember a few years ago I told a friend that I really enjoyed seeing films with twists. Uh, and he said, oh, like in uh, Sixth Sense, where it turns out that he's dead. And I said, oh, actually, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> um, but if you've got those sorts of situations where you know the ending, actually, it's hard to read it as though you didn't know, isn't it? It's hard to watch it as though you don't know who's going to win or you don't know what's going to happen. And I think the same is true here with Cain and Abel. We know the ending. This is one of the classic stories of history. We know what's going on. But what if we didn't know what was happening? How would you follow on from this morning's story of Adam and Eve? What if you didn't know what Cain would go on to be? What if you didn't know him figuratively from Adam? Well, what might Eve be thinking here as a son is born to her? Think about the prophecy that's just been made. Perhaps she's actually thinking that the serpent crusher is here. We talked about the serpent crusher, the guy who would come and crush the serpent's head, the one who would take away the curse. And we're told that it would be one of the offspring of the woman. Well, if you were Eve, what would you be thinking? Well, this is my offspring. Now, that's really what his name means. It's been gotten with the Lord's help. His name means got. Could he be the serpent crusher? Is it just a case of him growing up big enough to be able to crush the serpent? Because Cain is her firstborn. He's got the sort of first position, really, to the first chance, if you like, to be the serpent crusher. Abel barely seems to get a look in. Uh, his name doesn't really give him a great start in life, really. Uh, his name means meaningless. Uh, which is a great name to give your child, isn't it? So in uh, Ecclesiastes, where it says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, it's saying Abel, Abel, everything is Abel. Imagine giving your child a name meaningless. I mean, you get some weird ones, but that's uh, strange, isn't it? It's saying he's a vanity, a vapour. But Cain, he's the one that's been gotten. He's the firstborn. That's not how it plays out, is it? Cain can't even get the Lord to be pleased with his offering. Abel is the one who turns out to please the Lord. Now, if you think about this in terms of who they are as children, the firstborn and the secondborn, This is an important precedent through the rest of scripture. We're going to see this again and again, even in Genesis, that the God God doesn't favour the firstborn. Uh, So I don't know if you're the the firstborn child. I'm the secondborn. Uh, So as Caroline, we always sort of have a chat about what it was like being secondborn rather than firstborn. Well, God doesn't favour the firstborn. And as we read through Genesis, what we need to take into account as we read it through is that it was written to a real people in a real context. This was written to the Israelites, Israel. For them, it was important that they were Israel and not Edom. Edom was the firstborn. They were actually the children of the secondborn. The whole nation was descended from a secondborn son. And the Lord here seems to favour him over the older brother. Now, we're not told here why he's accepted, why the offering is accepted. But it seems to be more about the giver and less about the gift. It seems to be something in Cain that's the problem, and something in Abel that's the good thing. And it could be here that Cain is being cast in a bad light for the Israelites, as we see him here. So his name is Cain. We said it means gotten, but it's only a couple of letters away from Canaan. 
They were, if you remember, if the Israelites in the wilderness who were, this was being written to, they were the enemies that they were going to go and destroy. What else do we find about Cain and Abel? Well, uh, you see there in verse 2, And again she brought his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So Cain works the land, whereas Abel is a shepherd. You might think, well, that's just an interesting detail, isn't it? You're telling us what they do for a living. But think about it. Who loves shepherds? Sorry, who loves the land and hates shepherds? Well, actually, that's another one of Israel's enemies, the Egyptians. So on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there's Genesis 46, 33 and 34. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers at the end of Genesis. It says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keeper of livestock from our youth, even until now. We, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Abel would have been an abomination to the Egyptians because he was a shepherd. Um, But to the Israelites, well, they were the shepherds. That's their people. That's what they do. So is it that Cain is being cast in a bad light, perhaps? Or is it perhaps the other way round? It's not so much that Cain is cast in a bad light, but Moses, who wrote Genesis, is casting the Canaanites and the Egyptians in a bad light. You see, they are like Cain. They are like this murderer, as we're going to go on to see that he is. This really, the purpose of this section, and really one of the big purposes of Genesis, is to remind the Israelites who are living in the wilderness when this is first written, that the Egyptians were really bad. Because remember, they keep misremembering that. If you remember all the way through Exodus, we've seen. The Egyptians are bad, and removing the Canaanites from the land is what they need to do next. God is writing this with a point, and he's trying to show them by the way that he's framing history, by the way that he's framing uh, this account, that this is what they need to do. This is a message to the Israelites that leaving Egypt was a really good idea and that they need to press on into the promised land. And the details God has given us show us that by showing us what Cain is like and what Abel is like. But it must be said here, with all that taken into account, Cain is quite an unlikely candidate for the serpent crusher. And yet, God speaks to him as though it's a possibility. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin here is pictured like a deadly animal, crouching at the door, waiting to pounce. It's pictured like a snake coiled up, ready to attack. Sin desires to have him. If you remember from this morning, that's the idea of manipulation. It's the idea of getting round someone. But Cain must rule over it. It's that physical word, the, the, the ruling. He must crush the snake, if you like, crush the beast. If he does this, could he be the serpent crusher? If he can defeat sin? But we see there, though, that the snake really is in danger of crushing him. And the strange thing here is that the snake isn't out there like it was in chapters in chapter 3. The snake is in here. It's inside him. The evil's not just outside anymore, it's inside. This battle is going to be fought in his own heart. So it's not about ruling the beasts outside, if you like, like Adam and Eve were to do. Here it's about ruling himself. It's about ruling his own heart. And we know this all too well, don't we, as Christians? 
We want to change the world, yet we can hardly see any change in ourselves. You find, don't you, that January the 1st is a time of optimism, but from January the 2nd it seems to be less so. As we make our our commitments, as we make our resolutions, and then find that we can't keep them. We can't even tame ourselves, let alone our world. And this has been so since the time of Cain. None of us can really take on the beast inside ourselves alone. None of us can tackle sin by ourselves. And Cain can't, because in verses 8 to to 16, sin pounces. Let me read those verses to you again. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and away from your face. I shall be hid- uh, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The sin that was crouching now pounces on Cain. Cain descends further and now becomes like a beast of the field. You notice there that he takes him to the field where this takes place. The only mention of fields we have really in Genesis is the beast of the field that's repeated over and over again in 1 to 3. Cain doesn't rule the beasts like he's supposed to. He doesn't even listen to a beast like, a pa- like his parents. Here we see him really become one. The descent of man goes even lower than in chapter 3. He pounces and kills his own brother. Why does he do that? Not over land, not over money, not over women. Cain kills his brother because God loved Cain and accept- oh, sorry, God loved Abel and accepted his offering. He kills him because God loved his brother. How low can you go? And Cain is soon found out, isn't he? Just as God asked Adam and Eve questions, he already knows the answer to. So he does to Cain. See that there in verse 9? Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Remember, he asked Adam, where, Adam, where are you? As though God doesn't know where they are. Abel, where's your brother? Uh, Sorry, Cain, where's your brother Abel? God knows the answer. This is for Cain, isn't it? And do you note there that he he, he says, uh, I'll read it to again. Um, Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? You note the, the sort of need for your brother. There are only four people in existence at this time. He knows who Abel is. He doesn't need that extra bit of information as though there are several, you know, you have several Steves or several Daves or... He knows who Abel is, but this is here is your brother. This is a chance really for him to, to confess, isn't it? It's a chance for him to say, I did it wrong. But he doesn't take it. Just like Adam and Eve, he passes the book. Not my problem. I'm not his babysitter. Does he really think that he can outsmart God? 
But God confronts him with reality. Have a look at verse 10. And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The very ground that's been cursed, the very ground that you work is crying out with your brother's blood. Your brother's body lies dead on the floor. That's where he is. That's the answer to the question. And in response, God curses Cain. Now, this curse seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? Because it sounds so similar uh, to the curse that you get for Adam and Eve. But whereas theirs was for the whole of mankind, this one is personalised to Cain. It's as though this could have worked, but like father, like son, he carries on, he's cursed again. As Adam sinned and was cursed, so Cain sins and is cursed. Fruitless toil like Adam, forced to live out from his home like Adam, wandering is the new idea here. We didn't get that with Adam and Eve. Wandering, a punishment? Well, the Israelites knew that, didn't they? Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They know this is the punishment. And Cain has nowhere to go. Everyone who meets him will be a close relative of Abel. And up until fairly recent times, justice and, and vengeance was carried out by families. It was your nearest relatives that would do that. Everybody in existence would have a claim on his blood. So what does God do? Well, he shows him grace, doesn't he? Shows him grace. Uh, so um, look down there. So verse 15. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. If you remember from chapter one, we didn't really have a chance to pick up on it this morning. God clothes Adam and Eve, even after the fall. And here he puts a mark on Cain. Now we don't know exactly what that was, but it's a protection from him, uh, for him. You see where sin abounds, grace abounds. It's not an encouragement to just carry on sinning, but it's a reminder of the awesomeness of grace. God protects this murderer, he protects Cain. It's probably not saving grace that he's giving him, but it's grace nonetheless. Even to a murderer who killed his own brother, he can still receive grace from God. And it's a good job because things actually only get worse. We see in 7 to 14 that sin takes hold. Um, I'll read those uh, to you again, 17 to 24. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When, uh, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Neymar. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The line of Cain continues. Like father, like son. Cain knows his wife. That's probably his sister. Put it on a blue slip if you want to know more. Um, but she gives birth to Enoch. And Cain names the city after him. Now you know the sort of people who name things after their children or after their family. Uh, this made me think a bit of Trump Towers uh, in America. You know, you've got to put your name on everything uh, to show how great you are. 
And that's the picture you get here of Cain. He's naming uh, cities after his children. And the name Enoch means trained up. It means sort of instructed. So it's the same word as, uh, this isn't on your sheets, but Proverbs 22 verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's, it's literally Enoch a child uh, in a way that he should go. So it's the idea of being instructed, of being trained. Uh, like father, like son. Again, he's been initiated, he's been brought into the family. And the generations follow down in pretty regular order until we reach Lamech. Lamech has two wives. And this is really the first instance of polygamy we have in the Bible. And as you can see, it doesn't turn out very well. And it never really does in the Bible. Because it's going against God's plan for marriage that we've just seen in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But Lamech has four children. uh, Jabel and Jubal. Which just goes to show they even had embarrassing names back then, doesn't it? Jabel and Jubal. Why would you do that to your children? The other child is Tubal. So he's got Jabel and Jubal and Tubal. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tubal Cain uh, and Namer. Tubal Cain means offspring of Cain. So he's saying this child is, is like an offspring of Cain. It's following on in the family line. Far from being ashamed of his heritage, being from Cain, actually he's proud. He's naming his children after it. It's like Cain Jr. is his name. And Lamech, like his forefather, is a murderer. Uh, You see that down there in in verse 23? I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. The word young man there is a word that's often used for child. It's the idea of a youth. Really, this guy is a child killer. And he seems to show no remorse whatsoever. He doesn't depend on God for his protection like Cain does. Actually, he pronounces his own protection. Look there at verse 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He pronounces his own vengeance, his own curse, if you like, on people who would attack him. He tells his wives this is what's to happen, presumably so that they can get the children to go and attack the people who have killed him. Actually, he's working out a twisted perverted version of God's grace to Cain isn't he he's trying to sort it out himself self-awarded protection a self-exalting prideful pronouncement and he doesn't even do it equal to Cain he does it 11 times greater than the reprieve that God gave to Cain we're supposed to read this and feel a bit sick he kills a child and then declares that anyone who takes vengeance on him will find themselves destroyed in retaliation This is what mankind has come to. Sin has taken hold, especially of Cain's line. But that makes what's said about the rest of Cain's line a bit puzzling. Uh, I've been going through this. You know, it's there in in 20 and 22. Adab or Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play a lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namer. This all sounds pretty innocuous, doesn't it really? It's not, we've got the murderer at the end, but the rest of them sound a pretty alright bunch, don't they? Tent dwellers and livestock, players of the lyre and the pipe, bronze and iron instruments. And that word namer there means pleasant, he's got a pleasant sister. But I think that's exactly the point that we're supposed to see. The line of Cain aren't cultureless beasts. We're not supposed to think about them like cavemen going around and bonking one another on the head. They have a developed culture. They're sophisticated people. 
they're actually ones who are developing technologies that other people will go on to use, that we benefit from now. They're the cultured people, they're the sophisticated people. But this too had been Israel's experience, hadn't it? The evil that they had experienced was at the hands of the Egyptians. They were the most culturally advanced people on the planet. When they beat them, they probably beat them with an ornate stick. When they enslaved them, they did it on an industrial scale. It's arrogant to think, really, that sin only exists in the less cultured. We imagine that people who are a bit below ourselves, in inverted commas. So when I say the word sinner, for example, probably our mind goes to back alleys, dodgy deals, unshaven men with a cigarette in their hand. But opera goers are sinners. Classic FM listeners are sinners. People who frequent booths and weight rows are just as much sinners as those who go to Adel, uh, sorry, Lidl and Aldi, or any combination of the two. <laughs> and actually, those sorts of people, the, the rich and the cultured, they're more likely to pronounce themselves innocent, like Lamech. They're the ones who actually have the power and control to try and protect themselves. So as Christians, actually, when we look at this, we should be thinking, well, actually, we should expect per- persecution from the cultured probably more than others. Who are those who really disdain Christianity? Well, it's often people who see themselves as experts, as the rulers, of the, as the intelligentsia. Christianity, through the ages, has generally done better among the poor, among the disadvantaged, among the needy. Because those people know that they need help. So Cain's line are not idiots. We're not to sort of think of them as being like cavemen. But they are sinners. All of them are sinners. So what hope is there then? Well, last of all we see in verses 25 to 26, the serpent crusher arrives. Let me read them to you. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me uh, another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a uh, son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this really is a bridge into the next section, just for a few minutes before we, we finish and, and before we go on to that in a couple of weeks' time. This really is a cliffhanger to keep you reading. Is all hope lost? Well, Cain's line is not the only one that begins here. Adam and Eve have another child, Seth. Now, his name means appointed. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 3.15, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The word put there is appoint. It's I will Seth in enmity between you and the woman. So could he be the one? I mean, it's sounding positive, isn't it? People begin calling on the name of the Lord. Now, that's probably a word for prayer, uh, but it's used more positively, isn't it, elsewhere in Scripture. So Romans ten thirteen, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same phrase. Is it that people are beginning to trust in the Lord? Are we starting to see things changing? And this seems to be happening in Seth's line in a way that's completely absent from Cain's line. Seth also has a son that sounds a lot like Cain's son. You'd think with all the names in the world to choose from, they'd choose ones that were a bit different, uh, wouldn't you? But we have Enoch and Enosh. Uh, but their names couldn't mean more different things, really. Uh, well, they, oh, maybe that's an overstatement, but they do mean different things. Enoch, as I said, means trained up. But Enosh means a mortal man. It's the idea of being mortal. So in Psalm 8, verse 4, when it says, What is man? 
that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. That word man there isn't Adama, which is the normal word for man. It's Enosh. What is Enosh that you are mind of him, uh, mindful of him? It's the view of us as a mortal, as a, 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 a human being, if you like. It seems a much more realistic name, doesn't it? Than the one, uh, with, with, <clears throat> than Cain, where you've got him naming cities after his son. There's a lot more hope here. So could Seth or Seth's line be the one to break the curse? Well, we'll find out in a couple of weeks' time as we look into Seth's line, as Moses gives us an insight there. But what can we take away from what we see? Well, firstly, I want to say that the righteous have always been persecuted. That's the first thing we can get. There are two sides in the world, aren't there? And as believers, we've always been to some extent on the side that gets hurt. That's not goodies versus baddies. It's forgiven baddies versus unforgiven baddies. Actually, it's only our faith that really counts us in with Abel. So uh, in Hebrews 11 verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Well, here he is speaking to us. Actually, if we live righteous lives, if we live good lives, we should expect to get hurt in one way or another. The second thing that we can take from this is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It might seem like a bit of a strange application, but it's actually where the New Testament goes. If you turn up 1 John uh, chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, I'll read you verses 11 to 15. So we start at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So really what that's saying is if we want to learn the lesson of Cain, we need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are like Cain when we don't love our brothers and sisters. Now I'm not a big fan of sort of going into the Old Testament and saying, do be like this person, don't be like that person. But here we have the New Testament telling us that this is the way to read this, this is the way to understand it. So if you want to live out this passage, don't be like Cain. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Care for them. Take care of them. And then the last thing we see from what we've looked at this evening is that fighting sin now is as hard as it was then. We still have the beast inside us, don't we, as Christians? We have indwelling sin. And we're told in the Bible to fight it, aren't we? But that's still hard. That still needs support. And we still need to be honest about it, don't we? We do face a battle. I sin. Do you? I need help and encouragement in that battle. Do you? Well, Cain went at it alone, didn't he? And he lost. By ourselves, we just repeat his mistake. We really do know the end of the story because we know how it goes when we just face this by ourselves. Actually, we need the serpent crusher, don't we? Because that's the problem. We've got this beast inside us. We need the serpent crusher to defeat sin in our own lives. (coughs) And that really means we need Christ's death. When Christ died, he defeated Satan. He won. He's already done it. It's like that Bake Off final that's already filmed. 
and you're just waiting for the winner to be revealed. It's already done. Jesus has done it. So we need his death, the only thing that truly defeats evil. But how does that come to us? Well, we need the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit living inside us, applying his death to us. Because the spirit is a killer as well. But he kills sin in us. And we're called to join him. So those are things that Cain didn't have. So we mustn't make the mistake of Cain. We need the serpent crusher. If we're hoping to make any progress in 2017 in our battle against sin, we need the serpent crusher. We need Christ. Christ.